Welcome to Life Point. In case we haven't met, my name is Ben Miller. I'm the campus life pastor here. Our teaching pastor, Paul Pretty, is currently serving at the Lewis Center campus today. So he he has a he's he's doing something else. So today I'm filling in for you. It's kind of like getting the uh, the backup pitcher, or I don't know what what do you want to consider there. But let's take a minute and we'll pray for him, and we'll pray for us this morning. God, we thank you so much for bringing us here today. We pray that you would open your word to us. That in the humility of our hearts, we would come to your word and we would want to know what you have to teach us today. We pray for Paul. We pray that you would give him the words to say and the way to say it and that, and that many lives would be touched at Lewis Center as well. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I'm grateful to be able to be here this morning as we go through the series of Ecclesiastes. This, this, this book of the Bible is not a light-hearted book of the Bible. It's, it's, uh, it's, there's some not fun topics in it. Um, it sounds a little depressing sometimes, but I'm going to tell you what, there's a lot of hope there too. And, and, and this morning I want to talk about something really important. Um, but I, I want to, the first thing I want to tell you is every week throughout this series, we've been using the same tagline. This tagline says, God offers us a full life in an empty world. God offers us a full life in an empty world. And he really does. So this is exactly the message of Ecclesiastes. The message of Ecclesiastes isn't, the world is a really sad, dark place, and what are we doing here anyway? It's just a waste of our time. That's not what what Solomon is saying. King Solomon wrote this book 3,000 years ago, and what's what's really interesting there is that um, even though a lot of things have changed since King Solomon was, was writing this book, the things that he's saying, he says, there's nothing new under the sun. It's a chasing after the wind. There's so many things that haven't changed since then. And one of the things that haven't changed has been our level of competition. What do I mean by that? I, I think that we, are, we have this thing about us, this natural inclination. Natural, I'm not saying natural meaning God-given. I'm saying this natural inclination we have to start to rank ourselves, to see how well we're doing. How am I doing as a dad? I give myself a six and a half. How am I doing as a, as a husband? How am I doing as a neighbor? Is my lawn better or worse than my neighbor's? Are my dogs more or less behaved than my neighbor's dogs? Are my kids representing the Miller name? I mean, there's all these ways that we, we, we start to, to rank ourselves. How great is my house? How recently did I remodel? How great does my kitchen look or whatever? I mean, there's so many different ways to, to rank ourselves. But the, one of the worst ways that we, we find ourselves ranking is as a Christian, how well am I doing as a Christian? Well, I say, I guess I give myself a, a five on generosity and a, a seven on grace. I mean, you know, it's really, how do we do this? We do this subconsciously sometimes, and maybe we don't do this out loud like I'm saying right now, but a lot of ways we do it all the time. In fact, we meet somebody, and sometimes when we meet somebody, the first thing we ask is, well, like, what do you do for a job? Maybe it's just curiosity, but sometimes we just want to know, okay, are you doing something kind of relatively on par? We're, we're about the same age, and 
you know, maybe there's things that we're thinking at the same time. You know, I, I've, I've mentioned before on stage, and maybe if we've not met before, you don't know this, but we were actually missionaries in China for a little while, and, and one of the things is that in China, they don't, they, don't, they don't actually mask this at all. You get into a taxi, and the taxi cab driver will ask you, how much do you make? <sighs> Am I supposed to answer that question to a taxi cab driver? Where do you live? What do you do? They ask it every time you go anywhere. And I think what we do is, whether or not we, we overtly are offended by that or not, we're still doing that. We do it all the time. Maybe we're looking at ourselves and thinking happiness is this or happiness is that, but the competition that we set up for ourselves and the scorecarding diminishes the value of our lives and our ability to glorify God in our lives. Whether or not we have the dream job or the dream stuff or we're the envy of others, it's really important to understand that there's a lie out there, and that lie is, is exposed in the book of Ecclesiastes. That lie is our first point, which is happiness is attainable here on this earth. Whether we believe it or not, we can still act like we believe it. We can go through our daily lives believing that that next purchase will make us happy, that next thing. But everything we do, that emptiness falls short. Sometimes, let's just take the, 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 happy, or the, the happiness of a purchase for a second. We get the joy of that that Amazon smile box on our front porch. And, you know, I'm not criticizing. I order quite a few things from Amazon. <laughs> but we see that box, and, and our happiness lasts as long as, or sometimes even shorter than, the packaging. We look at the package, and we're like, oh, I probably shouldn't have bought that. That was a dumb purchase. We, we, can, we can even regret it that moment. But sometimes when we have that joy, the next thing. The thing is that the fact is that this world wants to convince us that we're really, really close to happiness. It's only that one more thing away, that next thing. It's right around the corner. If you just work a little harder, you can get that better job, that better house, that better car. That happiness is right there, and it's always there. But the thing is, we live in a broken world, and the broken world around us is very obvious when we look at the book of Ecclesiastes. So I want to open up the, the, the Bible, the Word of God, and look at Ephesians, Ecclesiastes chapter 6. We're going to look at verses 1 and 2. Paul's done a good job of, of walking us through, and we're about halfway through the book of Ecclesiastes. But in chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, it says this, there is an evil that I've seen under the sun, and it lies heavy on mankind. A man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor, so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires, yet God does not give him the power to enjoy them. But a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity. It's a grievous evil. So let's break that down a little bit. This statement is the epitome of of a kid saying, that's not fair. That's not fair. It's not fair that Johnny got another slice of pie. It's not fair. 
Well, you know what? What was our response as parents has always been the same thing every, every parent has ever said since the beginning of time, which is life's not fair. We want to set expectations because life is not fair. So what's, what's, what's Solomon saying? He's saying life's not fair. You're going to work hard all your life to attain, if that's your goal, and you, you, the more you attain, the more you strive, the more you do, you're going to get a little, you're going to think that you're getting a little closer and a little closer, and then you won't be able to enjoy it. It's not eternal. In fact, the grievous evil there is that it's just not fair. Our lives are short. The book of Psalms says that our lives are like a breath or a vapor. Very short lives. And for those of us who are believers, it's an astonishing reminder for us that our stuff will probably outlive us. But the real question is, why do we allow these things to consume us, and what should our response be? Brings us to our next point this morning, that a godly perspective on our possessions and accomplishments is one of generosity and gratitude. That's a godly perspective on everything we own and everything we are and all that we've accomplished in our lives because God is the one who gave us breath. He pumps the blood through our veins. He gives us another day to wake up. And as he does that, and he gives you the talents and the skills and the abilities that you have to go and do the job that earns the money. And as quickly as he gave it to you, he could take it all away. So then our response with a godly perspective, knowing that he could take it away at any moment if he wanted to, is generosity and gratitude. What do we do with that? Well, we hold it loosely in our hands. We hold the stuff that we have loosely in our hands. We want to glorify God with our home. Glorify God with our stuff. Glorify God with our job. How do we do that? Well, we, we do it with excellence. We do it to glorify God. Like Brad was saying this morning, and when he quoted that, the verse in, in, in 1 Corinthians, we do things for the glory of God. And as we do that, we bring glory to the God the Father through our hard work and dedication. That will outlast our lives and outlast our stuff. Let's look at, look at the next passage here in Ecclesiastes. Looking at verses 3 through 6, Ecclesiastes 3 through 6. If a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years so that the days of his years are many, but his soul is not satisfied with life's good things and he ha- also has no burial, I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. For it comes in vanity and goes in darkness, and in darkness its name is covered Moreover, it has not seen the sun or known anything, yet it finds rest rather than he. Even though he should live a thousand years twice over, yet enjoy no good, do not all go to the same place. So what what is it that we're making our scorecard about? Well, if we are living by the scorecard, even subconsciously, 
It's exhausting. It's absolutely exhausting to try to keep up with people around you. You could go broke. You could have a heart attack. Lots of things could happen as you try to keep up with all the expectations that you put on yourselves as you measure your own scorecard. It is a fruitless endeavor. In fact, what Solomon is saying is, it's, it'd be better if you weren't born at all. Because at least then, if you were still born, you'd be in heaven for all eternity, and you wouldn't have to deal with all the nonsense. You would actually have a lot more joy. Happiness is fleeting. All that stuff is fleeting. There's a lot of false promises out there about happiness. The fact is that when you are banking on on that happiness being that next best thing, that next big thing, that next effort that you're putting forward, I'm going to tell you what, it'll fall apart like sand in your fingertips. Why is it that we hear so many stories about music artists, movie actors, politicians, people who, CEOs, people who achieve something big, and then they deal with mental health so severely. Why is that? It's because they believe the lie. It is just that next thing, that next big album, that next blockbuster movie that will make me happy. And then they get it, and they say, well, that was a lie. That didn't make me happy. It didn't fulfill my soul. I'm still empty. That's because happiness at least in this world's terms, is unsustainable. That brings us to our next point this morning. Another massive lie exposed in Ecclesiastes is that happiness is somehow sustainable. It's not just achievable, it's sustainable. Once you get it, you're good. Then why is it that any time we achieve something big or we get something, the happiness, the joy that that brought us is short-lived. It's because that's not really where our joy comes from. You know, the lie persists, but happiness on this earth is short-lived. The pleasure of that next thing is short-lived. You know, anything that we have in our lives that we don't put God in the center of, all that does is churn more emptiness in us. It reveals the emptiness that is already there. It makes it deeper. It, it causes us to notice it more because we thought that thing would make us happy, that next thing. And part of that goes into the comparison into that scorecarding. Because we're saying, if I have more than the person next to me, I should be happier than them. We may not be saying these things out loud, but I'm telling you, we say them in our hearts. A lot of times we say them in our hearts. If I'm better than that person next to me, I'll be happier than them. You know, one of the things that I I got really frustrated with when it came to working in the normal corporate America world, and I'm sure a lot of you can identify with this, 
is that sometimes you achieve something and, and that's not actually going to help you. <laughs> what do I mean by that? I think sometimes in corporate America, success is not your friend. If you do well, my theory is it causes a doubling effect. So you do well, and they're going to expect more. Do well again, they're going to expect more. Do well again, they're going to expect more. It's going to keep happening. It, does, it just churns and churns and churns. You know, a few weeks ago, probably four or five weeks ago, my team presented, you know, I have another job where I work as, as an IT director, and my team presented something to the CEO, and he clapped. Some of you might look at that and go, oh, yeah, wow, man, you really you nailed that one. You made it. And I would just went, oh. why? Because I knew what was around the corner was more expectations. An endless amount of expectations and pressure that come behind that, that expect more, do more, beat your old goal, beat your old record. You got to keep up in your game all the time or you fail. That's the world we live in. And that competitive nature is, in, is put onto us, and then we also live it out. I've also got to achieve in order to keep my job or get ahead or get a, that next promotion. I've got to do more. I've got to be more. All the while, on the inside of my heart and in my brain, I'm thinking the same thing I've always thought all my life. I'm not good enough. I'm not enough. I can't do this. I don't have as much talent as they thought I did. And one day they're going to wake up to that and see it. And they're going to fire me. I don't know if I'm the only one who ever thinks these things, but I'm telling you what, it goes through my mind quite a lot. The fact is that the competition of this world, the scorecarding that happens all the time, happens in a number of ways. And it always is telling us that happiness is right around the corner. And once you get it, it's sustainable. Look with me at Ecclesiastes 6, verses 7 to 9. Ecclesiastes 6, 7 to 9. All the toil of, a, of man is, is for his mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. For what advantage has the wise man over the fool? And what does a poor man have who knows how to conduct himself before the living? Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite. This is also vanity and a striving after the wind. So we hear this statement over and over again about the striving after the wind. You try to catch the wind and it, it can't. You can't catch it. It's not tangible, Right? It's a striving after the wind. It's a vanity. It's just vanity. What is vanity? Vanity is pride. It's all vanity. It's me saying I'm better. And, and it's useless because before God, he doesn't measure us that way, right? So no matter what we do here, um, when we look at this, these phrases, we look at these statements, he says your appetite is for your mouth. What does that mean? Well, what it means is, if you're pursuing your joy through something that's going to bring you very temporary pleasure, food is a great example of this, 
Food is a great example because you eat it today and it's gone tomorrow from your body. So whatever joy it brought you yesterday is very forgettable. Even if it's not forgettable, in order to experience it again, you have to do to eat that thing again. And maybe in an unhealthy way. And so what happens is, just like that, we find ourselves self-soothing. This kind of happiness is fleeting because we're self-soothing. We're trying to pacify ourselves. We're trying to medicate ourselves out of whatever we're feeling on the inside. This also is useless and not eternal. So when we go, come to a passage like this and we see this, what we're really saying here is, this is how addictions are born. Addictions are born in the absence in our hearts, the vacuum of our hearts. It's because we believe a very specific lie, another lie that's exposed here, and that's our next point this morning, that temporary happiness is better than no happiness at all. We convince ourselves that temporary happiness is under my control, and that's better than no happiness at all. So I might as well make myself happy. I might as well treat yourself. Might as well do that thing, whatever it is that it is, that you use to medicate your, your heart and your mind and your soul, and it doesn't work. That's how addictions are born. Because what happens is it becomes a habit of self-soothing that turns into a ritualistic behavior of self-soothing, which needs help to get out. And if you've ever had an addiction, I'm going to tell you, there are places to go, there are people to see. Go and talk to somebody. We can help you get to a person. We can help you get to a Christian counselor who will help you. But you will need help to overcome addiction. It doesn't just happen on its own. We cannot believe the lie that temporary happiness is better than no happiness at all. Because what happens is, ultimately, we make it worse for ourselves. We're self-soothing, we're self-soothing, we're self-soothing. Oh, wait, ooh, there are consequences. Sometimes nasty ones. Whatever that, whatever that addiction is, always comes with a huge bite. A wound that is difficult to get rid of. And it could keep oozing for a while. The consequences of addictions last for a very long time, can even last for a lifetime. But they start by believing a lie that temporary happiness is better than no happiness at all. We can't work for our mouths. We can't allow temporary, temporary pursuits, temporary pleasures to be all that we go after. So let's look at this next passage. We're going to look at 10 to 12. Whatever has come to be has already been named, and it is known what man is, and that he is not able to dispute with one stronger than he. The more words, the more vanity, and what is the advantage to man? For who knows what is good for man while he lives the, the few days of his vain life, which, pass, which he passes like a shadow? For who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? I know this passage sounds a little confusing. It may not, may not even sound like it fits. 
I'm going to tell you how it fits. When we are comparing ourselves to everybody else around us, when we're scorecarding our lives, when we're telling ourselves that happiness is only being better than the person next to us, happiness is attainable, happiness is sustainable, even temporary happiness is still good happiness, when, as we do these things, what we're saying is, I'm trying to excuse my life, I'm trying to excuse my life choices by talking them through in my brain. I don't know if you've ever done this before, but the fact is that when we, when we, when we know we're doing something wrong, we tend to create a whole list and a dialogue of excuses in our brains. Uh, this is the reason why this is, this is still good for me. This is the reason why I do this. This is the reason why I do this. It's okay. It's not as bad as this person. I'm not as bad as that person. Look at that guy over there. You know, he, he's, he's homeless. What difference does it make? A fool is a fool. Whether or not you can excuse your way out of it or not, it doesn't matter. And that's what this passage is saying. We can't figure it all out. There is one who is stronger than us, who is wiser than us, and it's not us. And that's God. When we look at the behaviors in our lives and we excuse them and we, we talk them out and we, we, make, we say, it's okay, this is the reason why I do all these things, our many words aren't really buying us anything at all. Because God knows you personally. He knows everything that you're dealing with. He knows everything you are. He knows everything that you have problems with. And he knows everything that you're making excuses about. He knows how you're scorecarding your life. And he's going to tell you the same thing that you are already telling yourself. You're not scoring well. That's because God has already thrown out the scorecard. You know, the, massive lie expo the next massive lie exposed in Ecclesiastes is this. If we just knew all the answers of life, we'd feel much better. If we knew all the answers of life, we'd feel much better. If we only knew the future, we'd feel much better. This is why people go to psychics. It's why they do it, because if I only knew what was ahead, it would make me feel better about my life. Let me just ask you a question. Does it make you feel better or worse to look at the 10-day forecast on your phone? Does it make you feel better or worse? If you know it's going to rain for the next five days, does that make you feel better or worse? Probably worse, right? What difference does it make because we can't control the future? And if we can't control the future, then what good does it do us to be able to know the future? You only need to know one future. And that is if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you can spend eternity in heaven with him. That's your future. Everything else, forget about it. It's not important. I think sometimes we think in order to be a good Christian and rank myself high as a Christian, I need to know every single word of that Bible. 
I mean, it's great if you know every single word of that Bible. I, don't, I mean, if you've read the Bible 800 times, it's great. It doesn't make you a better Christian until you live it out in your life. The comparison doesn't exist. It only exists in your brain from artificial scorecarding. I was actually having the same conversation with one of my kids this week. I was saying, you're only winning by your own scorecard because you set the standard. You set the standard of what you wanted to put on that scorecard, and of course you're going to do well because you, you decided what was good and what was bad. But if God sets the standard, we're doing much worse than we thought. We can't worldly wisdom our way out of problems. I, I, I feel like you might be looking at me this morning and thinking, dude, you're a downer. You are, you're just killing me today. This is, this is sad. It's depressing. I'm going to tell you what, it doesn't have to be. I want to go back to Ecclesiastes 6.6. 6. Ecclesiastes 6.6. 6. He says this, even, even he, though he should live a thousand years twice over, yet enjoy no good, do not all go to one place. What is that one place? That one place is the grave. No human being ever who lived on the earth has escaped the grave outside of two people, and neither of those two people are Jesus Christ, <laughs> strangely. <laughs> yeah, one prophet and one guy in the very beginning in Genesis. They got taken up to heaven and didn't die. But even Jesus Christ, the Son of God, saw the grave. And that's where the good news comes in. Because he paid your penalty on that cross. He died. He went into the grave. But the grave could not hold him. And three days later, he resurrected from the grave. Conquering death and sin. And what benefit does that have to you? Because if he can conquer death and sin in his own life, he already did it in yours. He's already won. What is he telling you? Chuck the scorecard. Who cares? Because if you compare yourself to him, you're not going to get the same scores that he did. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. There is nothing that could give you a higher ranking or a higher score before the foot of the cross. He's telling you throughout the scorecard. Well, okay, well, okay, fine. I'll throw out the scorecard. I'll stop comparing myself to other people. I'll stop trying to de determine my happiness on the guy next to me. But what do I do now? You live in freedom. You live in grace. You live with the pursuit of God's glory in your life. Why do I go to work every day? I go to work every day because even though I don't like my job, I love the people that God has made that I work with. And I want to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with them. And I want to perform excellently as to the Lord, so that they could look at my life and say, I want to do that. 
I want to know his God. Why do anything unless we do it for the glory of God? And when you do things for the glory of God, it makes it so much better, so much more meaningful. Do you know that in the book of Revelations, it says something very clearly, that at the end of your life, you will be judged? All the works of your life will be put into a fiery furnace. The only things that will remain and not be burned up in that fire are the things you did for Jesus Christ, that you did for eternity. But that doesn't mean you shouldn't do the mundane tasks of your life. It doesn't mean you shouldn't feed your kids and clean up your house. That's not what I'm saying. What we should do is do everything for the glory of God. Not in an effort or a strive to be perfect so that we can have a great scorecard, so we can compare ourselves to other people and rank higher and think of ourselves higher. It's not about the scorecard. Chuck the scorecard. Do it for the glory of God. The myth in our Christian world is that in order to be a good Christian, you have to have a perfect family. You have to be a perfect mom or dad. You have to do all kinds of perfect things and have perfect Instagram pictures and you have to have a smile on your face at all times. Never, ever frown. Don't be sad. Don't be negative. That isn't real. Don't strive to impress. Don't strive for perfection. Strive to glorify God with your heart and your mind and your life. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you already tore up the scorecard. That, God, we don't have to compare ourselves to anybody around us because you have a one-on-one relationship with us. You know us. You know what we should be doing with our lives, and you know who we are and love us anyway. I pray for those who may not have a relationship with you that they would start one today, that they would see, they would stop running on the the hamster wheel of their life and realize that they need to be chasing after you. We pray, God, for those who are believers in Jesus Christ that are here today, but man, they're really caught up in this comparison thing and they're so unhappy. They're trying to look perfect to everybody. They're trying to compare themselves to other people and they think, if I only just look good to everybody else, if I look perfect, It'll make me happy on the inside if they see me as perfect. God, we pray against this idea. We pray against this fleeting concept. Instead, we want to humbly come before your throne, bringing all that we are, all that we have to you, and we want to glorify you with it. Shape and mold our lives to look more like you and less like each other. God, we pray that you would help us to strive for your glory. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.